Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing good this morning. Uh, This is our third week in our new space, and it has been so much fun just to be in a new location and get to meet new people. If you're here and you're a guest, oh yeah, if you're a second through fifth grader, you can make your way uh, to your Bible study. Um, You know, uh, I I, uh, love being a pastor, and it's a joy for me to to be with you. And as I was um, thinking about uh, my talk this morning, I wanted to just before I get into it, um, uh, sometimes when we gather, you might want to respond. You might want to take a step, and you say, well, I don't know how, you know. And so I want to make it very clear. If you want to respond, and what I mean by that is you want to take a step, you want to have a conversation with somebody to help you, you want to get involved a little more, which can be intimidating, right, because you're all so busy, I get it, but we have little ways to get involved. You can do that. And the way that you communicate with us is through that communication card on your chair, or uh, if you want to respond, want me to pray with you and to help you think through something that you're thinking about spiritually, during the Lord's Supper, I'll be standing up here in the front, and I'm happy to, to talk to you at that time also. But I want to just b- create a bridge to you, uh, although this is kind of a formal setting in the way that I'm standing up on the stage and you're down there. I want to, to you to know that I'm your friend, and I want to help you along the way. Okay, everybody ready? Get out your Bible, open it up to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 14, or excuse me, chapter 4. And uh, Katie did such a beautiful job of reading that. We're in the second part of a three-week series entitled, What's in it for me? So look to your neighbor and say, what's in it for me? It's kind of a funny question to ask in the church and one that, that maybe you feel funny asking because we know that ultimately what we're doing here is not about us, right? It's about God. It's not, it's not, um, it's not about our story only. It's about how our story fits in the grand narrative of what God's doing in the world. And, and, uh, but we have this question, what's in it for me? Well, last week uh, I talked a little bit about uh, the freedom that's in Christ, that's what's in it for me. We get freedom in Christ. God has done something for us by sending his only son to the earth. And as a part of his public ministry, he helped the marginalized. He helped uh, expose religious uh, fallacies and empty religious practice. He um, also went to the cross. And in dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, there's a mysterious exchange where through our faith in him, our sin goes to him and his righteousness comes to us. And we get freedom in Christ. Well, what we want to think about today is the answer to the question, what's in it for me, is we. So say we. Yeah, that's what's in it for me, is a we. And I don't mean we, W-I-I. When I told my son that uh, today the answer to the question is we, he was like, Sweet, everybody's getting a wee. Well, yes, but not in the way that you're thinking, you know, although that would be pretty cool, I think. Um, uh, so let me tell you this. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard of the story of this man by the name of Adam Brown. It's a book I uh, listened to this week um, through audible.com, a book called Fearless. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Adam Brown story. It's, it's fantastic, and I would encourage you to take the time. Adam Brown was a part of a SEAL team called SEAL Team 6. It was an off-the-grid team who everybody found out about after Obama announced that this group found and killed Osama bin Laden. Well, long before Adam Brown earned his place on SEAL Team 6, he was a fun-loving country boy from Arkansas whose greatest goal had been to wear his high school's football jersey. 
He was an undersized daredevil, prone to jumping off roofs into trees and off bridges into lakes. He was a kid who broke his own bones, but never would break a promise to his parents. But he grew older, and his family watched his appetite for risk draw him into a downward spiral that eventually landed him in jail. Well, his life in achieving his status as a part of SEAL Team 6 included lots of training and many physical injuries, and he constantly battled the call of drugs. He did eventually become a part of this elite fighting group. Some would say the most elite fighting group in the entire world. And as a part of his training to advance as a SEAL into an elite group called the Special Operations Development Group, Dev Group, he had to pass intense physical and psychological testing. Now, I really enjoyed reading this story, and I thought often as I was reading it of how what they were talking about, these relationships among these Navy SEALs, uh, were much like the kind of community that I longed to be a part of. In fact, the bonds that they shared on mission were absolutely essential to each one of them as they risked their lives, some of them paying the ultimate price. So there's this one part of the book, and the author describes the intense testing for Dev Group, and it was the hardest part for Adam Brown to pass. The particular part of the test that was most difficult, because all of these guys physically were uh, supreme athletes, the most difficult part for most of them was this exercise where they had to disassemble and reassemble different types of highly complex weapons while calmly answering questions. Now, I don't know how much you know about guns, and this certainly isn't an endorsement for everybody going out and getting one, but I recently had some time where I took apart, clean, and put back together a shotgun. And it took me hours. By the time I found all the buttons to push, and so as we think about these guys... In this exercise where they're disassembling and reassembling different types of highly um, complex weapons. And in the midst of it, under all of this pressure, knowing if they don't pass, they're going to fail, they had to calmly answer very intense questions. So one of the most intense questions asked of these guys that they had to answer under pressure was this. If, someone, if your SEAL team was out on a mission and someone triggered an undetected IED. You know what that is? An improvised explosive device, which is very likely in the battlefield. And someone on your team was injured. And not only were they injured, but the explosion alerted the enemy so that you began taking fire. What do you do? Do you focus on the injured person? Do you focus on the enemy? What do you do? Well, it was Adam's Brown, Adam Brown's response to this question that made me think about our own community of faith. He answered it calmly as he was disassembling and reassembling these weapons. Three things. Self-care, buddy care, and corpsman care. In other words, the injured must have some training before he's injured on how to take care of himself long before the injury so that when the time comes, he can tend to his own wounds, if possible. 
This allows for the rest of the team to take out the enemy and complete the mission. But if the person that's injured is unable to care for themselves, they must be able to rely on their buddy. They must have buddy care. So the buddies need to see that they can't care for themselves. One of them needs to peel off and begin taking care of the injured person who cannot take care of himself. And eventually, the trained person on the team, the medical corpsman, would take over the situation. And it occurred to me as I was listening to this story thinking about our church, that this is so much of what the church is supposed to be like. We are on mission. If someone gets injured, and people do, right, in life, I hope that we're able as a church to equip you to take care of yourself from time to time. Certainly there are things that come up in your own life, problems that you have, or maybe doubts that creep in, that we hope that we've equipped you so that you can do some self-care. You can preach the gospel to yourself. You can encourage yourself. You can know where to go in the Christian practice of reading the Bible or prayer. But certainly there are times when we need buddy care. It's a little cheesy to say, I know. But there are times where we must go beyond our own uh, ability to take care of ourselves because we need other people to take care of us. Now, this feels like the real life-giving kind of Christian community I read about in the Bible. And I think in some ways, this is the kind of life-giving Christian community that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4. He describes our mission in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 1. We get to walk together in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians to encourage them. He writes it from jail. The church in Ephesus is much like ours, young and growing. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, he lays out the gospel. Basically says, you were dead, but through Christ you can be raised from the dead to live a new life. God has done something for you through Christ. Then he goes into this part about walking together. I love this part of the Bible because what we see is much of what God wants to do in people's lives is not just about the me, but it's about the we. Everybody say we. I feel your passion. You're with me. Now, this is kind of a strange reality because we live in the West and the West is so highly individualistic. I recently read an article uh, by this guy named Richard Koch. He's an author of this best-selling book called 80-20. And, and along with psychologist Martin Seligman, they seek to find an answer to the question, is individualism good or bad? It's interesting in the article because he boldly states that what many po- people believe is that the defining quality of Western civilization is that people tend to be highly individualistic. This is what distinguishes us from, ev- from the East, from other parts of the world. Now, the result of this individualism, according to these guys, is that people become alienated. They tend to be selfish. They tend to be very divisive. Now, none of us want to be a part of that kind of a culture in ways described by those words. And we ought to, as we're thinking about this idea of is individualism good or bad, because certainly that's an important question as we think about the community or being in community, uh, you ought to know that 
individualism is not all bad. In fact, its roots are uh, in the idea that every individual matters, which we would certainly see in the Bible, right? Every individual person matters, and so... Uh, the root of Western thinking that emphasizes the individual really is, is pretty good. I mean, you as a human being, as an individual matter, your singular story really, really matters in the grand narrative and what God is doing in the world. So individualism can be bad, but it's not always bad. It's It's not always bad to adopt, as Shakespeare would say, to thine own self be true. But what we realize is that finding finding a community and growing within a community of people is necessary. But it's, it's not easy. We need to be a part of a community of people, like Paul describes here, so that we can grow beyond selfishness, so that we do not become alienated, and so that we uh, resist the temptation at times to become divisive. So the me becomes we when God is truly working in our hearts. We drift towards individualism, but we need the we because, as Paul says in verse 13, Uh, We all ought to attain to the unity of faith. This is the aim. We all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Also, verse 14. The we makes sure that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful scheme. Or verse 15. It talks about the aim of the we. The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there's real value in the we. I don't want to diminish your singular story, but there's value in understanding your story in context of other people's stories. So I want to tell you what Paul points out as important to build the we. For the kind of community where we can truly do some buddy care, uh, Paul gives us some pointers here. But, but before I do, I need to admit something. This is not easy. Real, life-giving Christian community is so hard. It is messy. When you start getting into somebody's life or allowing somebody to get in your life, it is so messy. It's messy because we have to become vulnerable. And we have to sit in other people's vulnerability. In my experience of the church, this is very rare. And I think it's because it's so difficult, which is why many churches that I've ever been a part of or known about define success not by the people's willingness to cultivate community or do it in the way in which we see in the New Testament, but he defines success by the quality of the music or the entertainment value of the preaching. So heavily emphasized. So much pressure on those things. Because, frankly, that's easier than getting involved with a group of people where there's real, life-giving Christian community. The lines get a little blurred. It's not easy to describe what this looks like. 
it's hard for me as a leader to, to define what I'm talking about here with respect to this idea of buddy care. But it's important. And I believe that one of the most important answers to the question, what's in it for me, is we. But the we is not easy. It requires us to get face to face, knee to knee, and have conversations that challenge us to bend. And we don't like to bend. This kind of community requires us to listen. So Paul here gives us some words that describe this desirable behavior. And so I'm going to tell you what these words are and what they mean. And then you can think about your own mode of operation. How you live and interact with other people in the community. And certainly this is also going to set an example for us as we aspire to be the kind of community where there's truly buddy care. First word that he says in verse 2 is humility. Everybody say humility. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 gives the best definition for humility. It says, count others more significant than yourself. Being humble is not being arrogant. Now, I do want to be clear because humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's not about putting yourself down. Instead, humility is thinking much of others thinking about others, honoring those around us, propping those around us up. Humility expresses itself when a person does not demand deserved position of authority or influence. Have you ever been around leaders like that, people like that? People that have a status and they demand that status? They lead with that title? Well, humility does not demand a deserved position of authority or influence. We can find in this church real examples of humility. I'm so proud to say. Me, I'm humble. Just kidding, that was a joke. All right. And we want to develop this, this, this in people, this idea of humility, which is why, as we say at Neartown, the path to leadership in this church is through the setup team. Everybody that is a leader, a person of great influence in this church, serves on or has served on the setup team. Now, this morning, I got here with a group of people at 8 o'clock, and I was sweating by 8.30, because this is the path to leadership in this church, because it is humbling to say, I'm going to, to work in a place that, in practically speaking, is kind of the lowest on the totem pole. I have seen humility in this church from so many people. And at the risk of embarrassing this person, and because he's such a humble leader, I, um, I know this will make him feel uncomfortable. But you know, somebody within our community, that, in fact, the person that whenever a major decision needs to be made, it's the first person I call because functionally he's an overseer with me of the church, is David Walker. David Walker is the most humble person I've, I've ever known, in any ministry I've ever been a part of. And this will make him feel really uncomfortable because he is so humble and he does not want to demand that status. And I fully expect free lunch, David, today for saying this. Um, but David is the kind of leader that I want to prop up and say, we, we ought to aspire as a community to relate to one another like he does to the community. He was out this morning sweating 
before some of you got out of bed, putting the signs on the corner to let people know where our community is. We want to be the kind of community where there's true humility in our relationships with one another. Paul also mentions this word, gentleness. This idea of gentleness, it's a little tricky to get to, but it is in contrast with harshness. Somebody that's harsh in dealing with others is not gentle. Now, gentleness is expressed mostly in how we talk to one another. People that are gentle typically do not yell or speak in anger towards another person. Gentleness is not weakness. Instead, gentleness conveys real strength. It's the ability to handle other people carefully. Now, as you and I both know, it is most difficult to be gentle when others irritate us, isn't it? Think about your marriage or a relationship of somebody that's close to you. When you get irritated, especially if there's some confidence that the other person can't run away from you, you might tend to yell at them, to scream at them, to holler at them. Someone who's gentle, and as we talk about our relationships with one another, certainly we want to aspire to this, that person is capable of handling themselves with another person. To be gentle. Now, I am a father of four children, and there are times when I'm tired, stressed out. The idea of, man, it's great to have four kids. This is so cute. I love them. That's lost, that's somewhere else. (laughs) There are times that I speak to them, not with gentleness, but with harshness. I try to, every time I do that, go back to them and apologize and just admit, you know what, I'm not perfect. In fact, the other day I was talking to Kobe, and he's the oldest, and so I typically uh, put more pressure on him because I'm trying to sort things out as I'm thinking about parenting with him, because he's the oldest, right? It feels riskier because he'll be the first one to leave the house. And so we were in my bedroom, and I was speaking with him, and I realized I wasn't yelling at him, but I was being harsh with him. I was trying to motivate him by shaming him, actually. And it just struck me, like, this is not how I want to relate to my son. And so I apologized, and I said, Kobe, I'm so sorry. I've not been gentle with you. And one of the things as a dad I want to grow in is being a strong leader, but to be gentle in how I lead you. I said, I'm sorry, I'm not perfect. I didn't even think he was listening to me, to be quite honest. And he looked up and he said, it's okay, you don't have to be perfect, that's why we need Jesus. I was like, I love you, man. Gentleness. This is the way we want to relate to one another. Some of you grew up in homes where because your parents did not know how to lead you or correct you, rather than being gentle with you, they were harsh with you. So you might operate in that way. Maybe in your workplace, the leader there, whoever is your team leader or boss, they're a person that leads harshly. They're not gentle. They're not willing to be strong and take the time to carefully bring the team along. 
Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time where a person couldn't be firm. Certainly, that's real life, right? But I'm saying gentleness is about strength and about caring for bringing other people along without motivating them by shaming them or putting them down or speaking angrily to them. Gentleness. I pray that we become a community of people where we interact in that way with one another. Paul also says patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, patience is close to gentleness. It'll be hard for me to kind of point out the distinctives and and there may certainly is some overlap, but patience is a state of emotional calm in the face of misfortune. Patience is about uh, being able to keep from complaining when we're irritated. Now, it does not mean that you have to let somebody mistreat you or squash you. Uh, patience is about being able to deal with the disappointment that comes when somebody else does not meet your expectations. An illustration of this, when you're driving and someone cuts you off. Clearly, they've not met your expectations, right? So do you tend to be very impatient with them? Do you tend to want to curse at them or to roll down your window and point to heaven with your middle finger, you know? (laughs) Is that your inclination? All of us have this within us. And so if it is, I don't want you to feel like you're alone. If you don't, then you're the minority for sure. Patience is is um, being able to deal with the disappointment of other people not meeting our expectations. Now, in, in this church, as we're talking about this idea of what our community ought to be like, um, we, we want our, our team leaders to be patient. Here's an example of an instance where a team leader has to demonstrate some patience. Uh, when somebody on their team is late to setting up or to to band practice, or to a meeting that's set. I, as a leader, have to demonstrate patience at times when people on my staff are late to meetings. And they don't do it very often. They're very good at about getting at times. But there's a way that I could communicate to them that this is not okay. This did not meet my expectations. But there's a way that I can do it in a very unhealthy way and a very healthy way. I need to be patient with them. Rather than angrily demanding them to try to motivate them to arrive on times, uh, a leader, in, hopefully in this church, will be able to calmly explain why their tardiness is inappropriate. And maybe you're in relationships already. I- imagine an instance where you're meeting with a couple other people and you're, you're getting together to kind of try to grow in your faith. You're reading the Bible together or reading a book about Christian things together. And somebody in the group is not meeting expectation. They're showing up. They've not read. They're maybe missing meetings or or whatever it might be, it's an exercise for the people in that group to demonstrate some patience to that person. Again, communicating that, hey, this is unacceptable, but in the same way, doing it in love, bearing with one another in love. This is, I think, some of what is going on here when he talks about patience. He lists the fourth one here. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, this idea of unity in the church, something that we must know is that unity is given to us by God. It is ours to lose, not ours to gain. It's interesting. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity must be guarded. We talk about this in our uh, membership class. We say that there are ways that we can guard unity. 
as a community and find out those ways and you'll have to come to the membership class. But uh, we, we ought to guard the unity that the Spirit gives us with the relationships being described like this. There's a bond of peace. What a beautiful thing. What a powerful thing. Now, when Paul lists out these things, and as I'm thinking about them and praying about them and trying to examine my own heart as it relates to how I interact with you all with these things, what occurred to me is that this is impossible. (laughs) It really is. It's nearly impossible. And there are some reasons why it's nearly impossible. So I just need to get this out on the table. First of all, in the church, and in every church, and certainly in this church, there are imperfect and flawed leaders. The funny thing about it, this whole thing is, although we represent the perfect leader, Jesus Christ, I am a very imperfect, flawed leader. I'm not as patient or gentle, nor do I do as good of a job as I ought to in guarding the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There are imperfect and flawed leaders, and leaders are important. Paul lists off some here, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, and we think about those leaders in our community. We have to admit that. Even your home group leader is not a perfect leader. He's flawed. He won't do these things perfectly, and it's okay. That's why we need Jesus, right? Another reason that these things seem so difficult is because, especially today, many of us operate in relationships with a very surface level of commitment. We like dipping in and out of relationships. We can do that online, right? When I want to, I can find out what's going on in your life. I'll check your Facebook. When I don't want to, I don't. We have gotten to a place relationally in our culture where most people are very surface level in their commitment to another person. That's why people so easily dip in and out of marriage. That's why people live like they're married before they actually are married because they're not willing to make a commitment to the other person. And, and uh, so I'll just take some variation of what God's best is. We tend to be very surface in our level of commitment to other people. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me. I, I certainly am like this. But it makes it difficult if we have a surface level of commitment to relationships. And it's funny as it think about church in our culture. I mean, there are a bazillion churches in this city. So one thing that happens in this city is that people come to the church, and they kind of interact a little bit and attend every once in a while. And then they go, oh, you know, I'm going to go over here and go to this church, you know, because they've got a different band or the preaching's better or, the, you know, the guy at this church said something I didn't like or whatever. And so we can do that. So it's acceptable. I and mean, we kind of bounce from church to church because our level of commitment to a community of people is so small. That's why, frankly, some people don't go to church at all. Because they don't see the value in it. What's the point? If it's just about the preaching and the music, I can get that online. It makes it difficult if we have a surface level commitment to relationships. So we're always calling people into deeper relationships and commitment and relationships to one another. These kinds of relationships that Paul describes here are difficult for many of us because of past wounds. We've been hurt in relationships. Maybe you can think of a time where you were patient with somebody, long-suffering with somebody, and you got burned really bad. And it hurt. Maybe you can think of a time where someone who should have been gentle with you was not gentle. They were very harsh with you. They shamed you. Our past wounds 
affect the way we relate to one another today. Do you believe that? I hope you do, because it is absolutely true. And I happen to believe, as I've done some work in identifying my own wounds, that most of the wounds that we have will be with us forever. And as we grow in understanding our story with respect to God's grand narrative, part of that journey is learning how our wounds affect our mode of operation with other people. I have, as an example, a very deep, serious father wound. My father abandoned me when I was a child, and my earliest memory of him was when I was five years old, and I was waiting for him to come pick me up, and he never showed up. That's a deep wound for me. I have a fear of abandonment. That's one reason it's so hard for me personally when people leave the church. Well, what I have learned is I tend, in my relationship to God, to feel like he's distant all the time. Like, God, you're supposed to show up, but you're not here. I realize that. Sometimes in relationships that I have in the community of faith, I get to a place of relationship with people, and then I go, I can't do any more because I don't know what that's like. It feels too familiar. It feels like it could be too close. And so I'm going to keep you at an arm's length of jokes. So sometimes our past wounds affect the way we relate to one another in community. We must be aware of that. And I apologize. This is really, frankly, a little negligent to even just bring that up with, without being able to like, put my hand on your shoulder and help you think through whatever's on your mind right now. Um, forgive me, and I want to walk with you in those things. What also makes it difficult for us at times is our blind spots relationally. You know, you have them. If you're married, your spouse has already told you about them. (laughs) We all have blind spots. We're more forceful than we think we are. We're more quiet than we think we are. We're more insecure than we realize. We have blind spots. We tend to talk too loud or too soft. We all have blind spots relationally. Do you know that? And one really cool thing about being in a church where people are committed, not in surface, a surface-level kind of a way, but are truly committed to relationships is that we get to learn to trust one another as we begin to point out those blind spots in the other, and rather than fearing it or running away from it, we get to walk together. We get to bear with one another in love through it. All of us have blind spots, and that's what makes this so difficult. One last reason this kind of community that Paul's talking about here is so difficult. I've, well, imperfect, flawed leaders, surface-level commitment to relationships, past wounds, blind spots. The fifth one is relational fatigue. Most of you are exhausted relationally. You're required to connect with people at work. You choose to connect in a surface-level of kind, kind of way online and five different ways. You have email boxes. You have social media that you connect with. You're always looking at who's posting what on Instagram. So you're fatigued relationally. Some of you have family members that are very demanding of you. Every birthday party that happens you have to go to, every anniversary, you're relationally fatigued. And then you hear me saying, hey, Let's grow together in community in a way that's humble, gentle, 
patience, bearing with one another in love. And you say, oh, I just, I don't have time for a home group. Well, I want you to know that although these are reasons that it is difficult, I believe very much that God's word lays this out for us because us learning how to be in community with one another and grow in relationships with one another, although it is messy, is the way that the world gets to see Jesus on earth. Jesus said this in John 13. The way that you love one another tells the world about who I am. What's in it for me? A we. So my challenge to you today in this moment is to take a step into the life of the community. If you're casually committed to a community of faith somewhere, my challenge to you would be to take a step into the life of this community. And if you can't do it in this community, then find one you can be a part of. Some of the most important work God wants to do in your heart and in your life is going to happen in the, concept, in the context of these kinds of relationships. Take a step. Some of you, the very first step you need to take is a relationship with God. You must admit to God you are not perfect. You cannot attain righteousness on your own. And God says, it's okay, I know it. I sent Jesus, he died on the cross, was raised from the dead. And it's through your faith in Jesus Christ that you begin to be made whole. You begin with the relationship with God Almighty. This is what it means to be saved. Then you identify yourself in this taking of step with the community of faith. And we receive people in that commitment through the act of baptism. In fact, we practice baptism by immersion. There are lots of different traditions of baptism. We like baptism by immersion because, frankly, I think it's what the word baptism means in the New Testament. The word baptism means to dip in the water, to immerse in water. So we receive people into commitment into our community of faith through baptism by immersion. Some of you have been attending and you've been putting that off. And I want to encourage you to take that step of faith to say, yes, I want to be a part of this community. Take a step into a home group. I know you're busy. I'm busy. But frankly, the thing that I most enjoy being a part of and there are so many good things about this church, is my home group. I love being with those people. We laugh together. We get exposed together. I don't mean like we take our clothes off. I, I mean, mean like we, our hearts get exposed. You're like, oh man, I'm going to come to that group. I, I love it. And I think in some ways because what's happening in there, and even sometimes the the, the friction of awkward relationships. But it's, there's a group of people that are committed to coming every week and working things out, and then there's interaction outside. We value not just the gathering once a week, but the everyday connections. Take a step into the life of the church. Not just so you can say, hey, this is a church I go to, but because it's in this kind of uh, community of faith that you get to grow in your faith and you get to experience the kind of thing that God wants you. He gets to help you see him in a way that you never have before. We want to aspire to having a community where there's really, really great buddy care. Let me close with this illustration. 
Navy SEAL Chief Adam Brown was killed in action in Komar Province, Afghanistan, on March the 17th, 2010. In true Adam Brown style, he died a hero. He placed himself in the line of fire to protect other members of his community. Adam's special ops assault team was assaulting an enemy compound, an operation Adam had performed many times. The U.S. forces were engaging the enemy in a firefight when a portion of the U.S. soldiers were pinned down by a very heavy fire from the enemy compound. In an effort to protect his community of men, Adam charged the enemy from a better vantage point. He drew fire away from his pinned down comrades. His selfless action for the good of the community relieved the fire on his team. But it unfortunately resulted in him being struck by enemy fire. Adam's heroic actions saved the other men. The enemy compound was captured and all enemy combatants were killed in action. Now Adam Brown was an incredibly strong Christian who loved the Lord and served him until his last mortal breath. This is an important part of the story. And I tell you this story in hopes that it will set for us a level of intensity to buddy care. What's in it for me? I'll tell you what's in it for me and for you is the we. Let's pray together.